Well, in a few moments, we'll have an opportunity to thank both of our speakers, but we are going to move into a time before we bring our gathering to a close today of some uh, questions, and the hope is there's some answers as well. So we at least have some questions to bring to both of you. I want to begin by asking a question, and these questions are really drawn from the themes that both of you have so capably brought to us in these messages over the course of the weekend. As both of you are aware, uh, when it comes to the Christian life, Christians can fall into extremes. Uh, there are some who uh, feel the need to have their life lived revolving around a series of rules and regulations, legalism, uh, but there are some Christians who really feel that they can live with absolute freedom. Uh, they're a Christian and they're forgiven and they can do as they please. How does a biblical understanding of grace speak into that? Uh, what is the biblical understanding of the Christian life preventing us from going in the extremes of legalism and licentiousness? <laughs> they're both humble. <laughs> As it relates to grace, I would say God's commands are a form of grace, that just his speaking to us in revelation is, is grace. You see this in Psalm 19, where the word of God uh, is joyfully given to the world, and then the second half of Psalm 119 contrasts the word of God with general revelation, and the word of God is um, able to transform the soul and make the naive person wise and make the foolish person, uh, the simple person grow. And so it's given as a blessing, a benefit. And so when a, when a Christian says, I can live however I want, you know, that's true. Um, but your desires should be conformed to the word of God. So you don't pursue holiness against your will. You pursue holiness because your will has been changed. And the word of God is a form of grace that shapes your will and then shows you how to live. It's guardrails for your life. Um, you know, a person driving his car wouldn't say, I can drive wherever I want. So I wish the highways didn't have guardrails. You say I can drive wherever I want, so the highways need guardrails to shape my desires and my affections. Um, the Word of God is definitely a form of grace given to us. Is this um, microphone on? Um, I would just add an illustration and say that uh, when you're raising your children, you don't want your children to hear your message to them, which is, if you're good, we will love you. That's a dreadful way to raise children. But at the same time, you don't want to raise your children saying you can do anything and nothing will happen. That's a terrible way to raise your children. But if you're raising your children so that you're saying to them, we love you, and sometimes our love will look like this, but if you burn the house down, our love will look like this. <laughs> In other words, you want your children to grow up knowing that they're loved, but the love may show itself in various wise ways. And so with the Christian, we want the Christians in the church not to grow up thinking if I'm good, God would love me, that's dreadful. Not to grow up thinking I can do anything and nothing matters, but to grow up saying, this God loves me, this is what his love looks like, this is how he blesses me. When I'm stupid, this is how he disciplines me because he loves me. Fantastic, very practical answers, thank you both. Jesse, in your message this morning, you made reference to the means of grace and your two points particular where you had um, issued the reminder of how 
Um, the means of grace is something we need to make use of as believers, both prayer and the Word of God. I wonder if you could maybe give us a little bit more of um, an explanation concerning what is the meaning of the means of grace? What do we mean by that? And how is that really useful for us in our day in and day out lives as God's people during the week? Well, food helps you grow. And so if you want to grow, you eat. And so food is the means of growth. Um, so obviously there's all the, like the digestive system and everything that takes place with that, but food is the means of growth. And working is how you procure food. So it's all together. You want to grow, you work, and then you eat. So spiritually, there's means of, of growth as well, and often referred to as the means of grace. They're what God, the food God gives you so that you can eat and grow. So sometimes, especially the Puritans, uh, when they use the phrase the means of grace, they would use it in reference to the corporate gathering. So their means of grace are always a corporate expression. So they meant it in distinction from your own private spiritual growth. So scripture reading, the preaching of the word, corporate prayer, giving, uh, fellowship, um, those were all the, the kind of the means of grace for many of the Puritans. Uh, as opposed to in Catholicism, you know, there's the sacraments, that grace comes through sacraments, the seven sacraments or whatever. Uh, some of the Lutherans and certainly Calvin rejected that and replaced that with the means of grace, um, which were, you know, congregationally the preaching of the word and, of course, communion and baptism. And then the Presbyterians uh, added to that the more of the functions that we would say of, like, listening to sermons and praying congregationally. And now I think it's fair to expand that phrase to include your own individual devotional life. You know, like you get up in the morning and you open the Bible and you read the Word, and that's how you're being fed um, by, by God, and you have an actual prayer life. Um, so sometimes we feel like we're not experiencing God's grace, but that usually goes along with not praying or reading. So it's, I mean, it's not rocket scientists. You don't need to go to go to seminary to figure that out. When you're not reading the Bible and you say, like, I feel like I'm not hearing from the Lord. Yeah. There it is. Now, thank you. Could Simon, I, go ahead. I think it's important to distinguish between the grace that saves and the grace that strengthens. So the grace of God comes down to save us. We don't do anything to contribute to that. This is the hand of God leaning down to us. But the means of grace are gifts from him which will help and strengthen our faith. They're both his generosity. The grace that saves is his generosity. The grace that strengthens his generosity. Has he given us a book to bless us? He has. Has he given us a throne to come to? He has. Has he given us fellowship? He has. We've got to be just thankful for these things. That's wonderful. And Simon, picking up on that, in your message just now, Titus 2 and verse 11 speaks of an appearing. Uh, Titus 2 and verse 13 speaks of another appearing, and both of these bring grace. So this grace of God has distinctions. Can you maybe just um, tease out a little bit how both looking back at that appearing of Christ that brings salvation to all, and that great blessed hope, the second coming of Christ, how these appearings of grace help us as Christians in our growth? Well, that's a, that's a tricky... I was, I'm just enjoying this when Jesse goes first and answers the question. <laughs> <coughs> and then I get plenty of time to think. 
So here I am, I'm a Christian in 2022. My mind looks back to the first coming of Jesus and I say, how wonderful. The God of the universe came to our planet with love and died and rose. And then I'm also looking ahead. So I live between these two dates. One of them I know, the day Jesus came. One of them I don't know, the date that he arrives. And in between the two of them, I'm secure but they are both an incentive, aren't they, for gratitude and faithfulness. This one is an incentive that he came and died. I'm so grateful, and he's given me a new life. And then this return, which is also going to be very wonderful, but it is an incentive, isn't it, to be faithful? Not because my eternity is in doubt, but because I'm going to meet him, and I want to meet him as a servant rather than as a rebel. I don't know if I can say it any better. I'm now handing over to Jesse to solve what I just said. <laughs> I, love, I love that. That's helpful. I mean, I, th- I think of John 1, is it 14, that Jesus comes filled with grace and truth. So I think it's likely that's kind of in view, that Jesus came overflowing with grace and truth. And that I think speaks to the Trinitarian relationship of the Father and the Son, that the Father has delivered just the fullness of himself to the Son. The Father is truth and the grace overflows from the Father and all of that's been given in its fullness to the Son. So that when, you know, Moses goes to the mountain and has his face, you know, veiled and can't behold God's glory and he comes down with the law and the law is impossible to keep and you know, it shows how you're separated you are from God. Now, Jesus comes, and he's filled with grace. He's filled with truth. The author of the law is there incarnate. His face is unveiled. Um, People can see him and communicate with him. So when I think of uh, what it means that Jesus came with the grace of God appearing, my mind just goes to the beginning of John's gospel, that he came just filled with grace. What, What a reminder. And in addition to those amazing answers, I would encourage you to look up a sermon preached by Charles Spurgeon. I think it actually is entitled Two Appearance and it's from Titus 2, 11 and verse 13 and I, I think the things that we've just heard now uh, will really supplement that as well. There are times in the Christian life we walk through valleys, uh, trials, disappointments and many moments of sadness will come upon us and it's overwhelming and we do not feel the grace of God. We're in a a valley of the shadow of death. Um, Potholes uh, seem huge. They're more like craters before us. So in those moments when we go through those times of darkness and a disappointment, and someone does say, I just don't feel like the grace of God is upon me. How would you counsel a brother or sister in Christ who isn't subjectively feeling that grace in that moment of despondency and sadness? I think I would say that uh, our feelings, though they're a wonderful gift, they're a terrible master, and we need to be very careful that we're not bullied by our feelings into unbelief. Um, We're meant to walk by faith, not by sight, which means that sometimes we have to just stick with the promises in a dark, dark road, and they are the light. I think Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a very helpful verse pastorally. You know, the secret things belong to the Lord. There are things that we just can't easily explain, but the things revealed are for us and our children. 
And so we find ourselves being an agnostic at, the, at one time and a dogmatic. So the person will say, I'm going through an absolutely dreadful time and I want to say to them, I don't know why this is, I'm an agnostic, but I do know there is a God on the throne and I do know he's shown his love for you, hold on to that. This may be an open hand, I don't know, hold on to this. I mean, Psalm 23, it's, he leads me through the, the valley of the shadow of death. And it's in the valley, the rod and the staff are comforting. So it doesn't say he leads me through. And then later, um, after it's all done, I'm like, oh, thank you. No, it's, it's you're comforted while you're going through it. And later on in the psalm, he prepares the table for me in the presence of my enemies. Um, so we, we would so quickly want to reverse that. We would want, you know, he gets rid of the enemies and then... You know, once you go off and fight and win the battle, once David comes back with the, you know, the, the 10,000 scalps, then he can feast. But that's not what Psalm 23 says. You know, it's while your enemies are still there, while Goliath is still on the hill, um, then you, at that point, uh, you recognize God has provided all that you need right there, even when the rocks are still headed at your head. You know, Absalom's on the throne, but God has still provided a table for him in the presence of his enemies. So practical. Simon, go ahead again. I just want to add my, one more comment to all of this, and that is uh, there is a time, I think, where we get to have a usefulness. You know, somebody is in hospital. They've heard terrible news. They are utterly depressed. They're in darkness. You go to them. You sit beside them. And somehow you might be able to say to them, I have come to sit with you because I am really committed to you. And I don't know how to solve this, but I love you. And I want to bring a reminder of God's love to you. And what you're doing is you're showing to this person a tiny percentage of God's love for them in a tangible way so that they can say, my problem has not gone away, my circumstances are not perfect, but this person who came and expressed some affection and some sympathy and some love is a small reminder to me that this God is completely like this. And so we can sometimes play a role of being a visible and audible uh, messenger. That is so useful and a wonderful reminder for us take an opportunity too to remind you of a, a very useful resource if you haven't heard of it, more so in terms of dealing with yourself in those moments. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, we've mentioned the good doctor this morning already, um, he wrote the work Spiritual Depression, um, an exposition of Psalms 42 and I think 43 as well, where he has that great thesis of hoping in God and there he does remind us that there are times our feelings might not be right, but we speak facts into those feelings concerning God. But that compassion that you just shared there, Simon, is very important for us to remember when we are in those strong times to help those in those weak times. Thank you. A theme that had come up last night, particularly from Titus 2 in those um, opening section, verses 1 through to 10 there, is this idea of, of manhood and womanhood. Uh, we have a role in the church, the older men, the younger men, older women, younger women. Uh, I think it's uh, not an exaggeration to say our society is pretty confused when it comes to what manhood and womanhood is all about. Uh, we as Christians have a tremendous opportunity to shine forth the grace of God. 
Uh, what would be just some words of encouragement you could give to the men and the women, the old and the young in our church, to fulfill the blessed role of biblical manhood and womanhood in the church by the grace of God? Jesse, you start us off and Simon will clean up. <laughs> I was so ready to deflect right away. I mean, I think this. I'm not familiar with Australian culture at all and don't pretend to be. I've been here four days. Um, but I know in the United States, there is definitely a war on, on biblical manhood, for sure. There's what's often referred to as the feminization of our culture. Educators are predominantly women and administrators in the educational world are almost entirely women. And so the result is certainly a feminization of, of kids, even as, the, as they grow up where boys were made more like girls. And there's this concept of toxic masculinity. It wouldn't even be politically correct to say toxic femininity. Um, and so the result of that though is you get boys that are addicted to video games, boys that are addicted to themselves, lovers of pleasure, uh, boys that are addicted to ease, parents that coddle that, and then they grow up unable to provide for their families, unable to work, unable to put down their phones and put down their video games and be a productive member of society, which is what set Adam apart from Eve. Adam was to work with his hands and till, till the earth and um, Eve was to be his helper, but Adam was the one who was called to that task. And so it seems like just in the world of manhood, it's become, that's, that's toxic. You, being a hard worker is toxic, but being entertained is acceptable, which has the secondary effect of, of an assault on femininity and that it's very different for, difficult for a woman to follow a man who can't work or for a woman to follow a man who has no work ethic and no leadership capability, who's been taught that leadership looks like apathy or leadership looks like despondence or deference. Um, so it's a dysfunctional. That, and that is a very, it sounds subtle, but it is a very frontal and direct assault on what it means to be a man because leadership is not esteemed. Um, so I tell guys all the time, if you, if you want to be a biblical man, you know, become someone who's passionate about the word of God who knows the Word of God and is not afraid to act and speak uh, on the Word of God, um, you develop your convictions, which don't come easy. Like, they don't, convictions don't grow in trees. You have to foster it, which requires a work ethic. So put away the video games and open the Bible. Get a job. Um, Very practical advice. Write that down. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I want to just tell you uh, an anecdotal story uh, very quickly. I could tell you a thousand blunders that I've made in ministry, but one of the things I did love to do was to meet with men for lunch. Um, I just loved it. And I would often say to the men at some stage in the lunch, do you pray with your wife? And often the man would look extremely awkward because what he's thinking is, my wife's the spiritual giant, I'm a hopeless guy. And that sometimes drains into her taking all the spiritual leadership. And so what I would say to these guys is, don't wait until you're a spiritual giant. You'll wait forever. Wait until you've got a great saviour. If you've got a great saviour, wait until your wife is in a good mood and say to her, you know, I've been pretty negligent in praying with you. And why don't we make a minute 
each day when we'll pray together, just one minute to thank him and commit things. And I was telling this guy, uh, his name was Heinrich, and he listened. The next Sunday, I'm shaking hands with people at the door, and his wife comes out, and she leaves the ground and throws her arms around my neck and kisses me. I mean, this happens to me a lot, but uh, <laughs> this never happens to me. She left the ground, she threw her arms around, she kissed me. She said, I've been waiting years and years for this. So um, that's what I would say. You know, we're not looking for nasty men. We're looking for loving leaders who can say, let's, let's grow together. And that's the reason why in the church we also stress the good leadership of the men because the local family and the church family ought to be reinforcing one another. I mean, what could be crazier than to say to a guy, be responsible for your family, and then you turn up and all the roles have been turned upside down? Yeah. So um, we're wanting the family, capital F, and the family, small f, to strengthen one another. And the plan of God in 1 Timothy 2 is absolutely beautiful and brilliant. To bring a final question to both of you, I want to just affirm in front of everyone, we know that neither of you are prophets or sons of prophets, but if you were to look into the future, again, recognizing you come from different places, what do you foresee some of the challenges that are before us as a church, um, as Christians, and how can we depend on God's grace to face those challenges? Please answer so I have time to think. <laughs> so I, I'm, because I'm American, I have such a good caveat. I can say, I don't know about this culture. <laughs> and I can say whatever I want. <laughs> this is a Western culture question. Yeah. I can tell you in the church where I'm pastoring now, I definitely see that there is a discomfort in some people in just the cultural changes in the last decade. I was talking with some guys during um, tea time today about this, where there was such an, like almost an expectant attitude 10 years ago that we have a Christian culture. Uh, in, in the United States, there's this idea that the culture has been, the parameters of it have been kind of hedged in by Christian ethics and Christian worldview. The, kind of the Judeo-Christian worldview is the phrase that Americans often use. Um, that you don't have to be a Christian to receive the blessings from that. Uh, and so Christians have grown comfortable into functioning in that society. And I think COVID did just an incredible job of exposing how much that had changed. Uh, and in the last 10 years, I think the culture has drifted away from that significantly to where now it's certainly not a Christian culture. You know, it just, it just isn't um, in a lot of very tangible ways. But what COVID exposed in this was a lot of the kind of older generation of leaders didn't know what to do when the government said you can't worship. Like they just didn't have a grid for it because they had been, they'd grown up for decades praying multiple times a year, Lord, we're thankful that we live in a country where we can meet freely. Like just a normal rote prayer that people always prayed. And what do you do when your church is meeting and the law doesn't allow you to meet? Do you still pray that prayer? I mean, it's not true. Uh, and there's just this huge discomfort for that. That's just a little cultural phenomenon for the last, last few years that global Christians have come to terms with 
centuries ago. You know, if you visit churches in, in India or Bhutan or even some churches in China, they've already come to terms with that. You know, like they're meeting against, they figured out how to pray for their government, how to be submissive for their government, how to honor their government, how to pay their taxes and all that, while still meeting when the law tells them they can't meet. Um, so I think that the big threat for the church is going to be navigating that the American church anyway is just centuries behind. And it's been a blessing of, of freedom in our country that we are centuries behind that, but um, it's, it's kind of, it, well, it's come to a head the last, the last few years, and I think it'll continue to do so. Um, I think I would say that, um, well, first of all, let's say something in terms of positivity. The Word of God is going to be fresh until Jesus comes. It's not going to become wrong. It's not going to become stale. It's going to be fresh and great and wonderful until Jesus comes. So don't lose confidence in it. Are we in the days of the book of Judges? Maybe we are. But the Scriptures know everything about the world, everything about God, everything about us. Hang on to the truth. And although we may be, as Stephen McAlpine has said, but we, it may, we may have become the bad guys, we've only become the bad guys to people who are more lost and confused than ever. So keep saying your prayers, keep reading the Word, keep loving people, and trust God. Your answers are so pastoral. <laughs> like, I'm feeling pastored by you just <laughs> in these answers, Simon. Thank you. There's a very small sieve in my brain, so I just say very simple things. We look to you for sensible things. I think we have been greatly blessed by two fantastic, faithful, and very clear and competent preachers. Can we please express our gratitude to both of these men for this weekend?